Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, political science, and culture. Today's topic is inflation isn't going away. Our speaker is Boris Vladimirov, who is a market strategist at Goldman Sachs. I've been a close friend of Boris for over 15 years, and I met him when he was a bond speculator for the macro hedge fund, Brevin Howard. I asked Boris to speak about what caused the recent surge in long-term interest rates. I want to understand the risk that the Fed's recent interest rate hikes will cause recession, and I want to know if the public's expectation of future inflation will go back to 2%. Let's get started. These are my personal opinions only, and I do not represent Goldman Sachs where I'm a market strategist with the global markets team. Until the outbreak of war in Israel, bond yields have been surging higher, particularly for longer-dated maturities. What happened? Well, we had a significant repricing of term premium, something that we have been puzzled that didn't happen in the aftermath of the inflation surge a year ago. It was pretty much a straight line since summer. Term premium is what bond investors need to get paid, an incremental yield for buying bonds with a longer maturity. One quick way of looking at this is the yield spread between two-year bonds and 10-year bonds. This part of the yield curve has been severely inverted for the past year, and it's now much less so. Why is that? Yes, you're right. The curve was very inverted. And you can argue that actually different segments of financial markets were pricing different probability of recession. You know that there are models that tie up the inversion of the curve with the probability of recession one year ahead. Or is there a debate between bond and equities? Because in our recession probability model, the subcomponents, equities were pricing 5% probability of recession in June, while fixed income was pricing 100. Now equities are pricing 15 to 20, and fixed income has gone to 80. So there is a dialogue in the market about whether the Fed is too tight. I always like to think in terms of fiscal versus monetary because the two policies interact and we tend to focus a lot on monetary because it is easy to observe. So this comes back again to the term premium repricing and let me explain that. Term premium, you can think about it as the extra price that investors like you require in order to be long duration. In the past, there has been a clear correlation, especially between 1965 and 1995, where we had big surges in inflation, with inflation actually leading term premium by a year. So the biggest conundrum post the inflation surge of 21, 22, was that term premium did not rise immediately. And even now, we have repriced only to an adequate level. Ten-year U.S. Treasury interest rates rose to your interest rate target of four and three quarters and are now bouncing around that level. Now we have reached that target. So, you know, can we go further? Yes, but we think it's going to be more of a range here and consolidation unless we see another round of inflation, which we don't think is that likely. What caused the recent inflation surge since 2021? Well, we had a shock that nobody had seen, right? I mean, COVID with complete seizure of labor markets, unemployment rate, shooting initial claims. Still, when I do work on initial claims, I have to remove the COVID part of the sample because it just distorts everything. So if a policymaker is in this environment, you think that you have to throw everything you have at it, right? And 
as monetary obviously was limited at the zero lower bound, Fisco had to do the heavy lifting in COVID. I think that this is what triggered a substantial fiscal response, which in US probably was substantially larger and more direct than in Europe. European fiscal response was more in the form of optionality and guarantees than direct transfers. The economists who looked at policy at that time, like Jason Furman, he was saying the shortfall in demand was probably something like one to one and a half trillion. We did substantially more than that because the situation looked abysmal. Since then, supply has actually normalized and demand has remained stronger, which is actually not untypical after big fiscal stimuli. I mean, the IMF was expecting above trend growth and inflation for five years after the shock. There's an appropriate time to use Keynesian fiscal stimulus, and there's the wrong time. The right time is when you're in the depths of a terrible recession, and the wrong time would be when you're near full employment and you're having supply constraints. In January 2021, the Biden administration passed a massive stimulus bill and an infrastructure bill at a time where we were headed for full employment. Economists like Larry Summers said this was a policy error at the time because it would likely result in inflation. What happened? When you look at the balance of fiscal and monetary, the paradox is that in the post-Lehman period, we were saying all the burden is on monetary and fiscal is tightening and not doing enough to support demand. And when we're looking now, we're seeing very high real rates and fiscal not tightening enough. If we're talking about getting inflation from 35 to 2 the optimal way would be with 3% fiscal tightening and 200 base points lower front-end real rates. That will be the soft landing cycle extension policy that can bring less volatile results down the road. And I will refer to the work of Claudio Borio at the BAS in the latest annual report that elaborates on these fiscal monitoring balances. I want to push back on your comment that real interest rates are too high. For the benefit of our audience, the real rate is the difference between what U.S. Treasury bonds yield and inflation. In other words, it's the real return of interest that you earn after inflation. For example, currently the Fed funds rate is 5.3%, and the annualized core CPI inflation rate was 4.3%. Therefore, the real rate is only 1%. Boris, are you focusing on the instantaneous real rate, or are you considering where inflation will be in a year? So the way we look at it is the one-year-ahead pricing for Fed funds minus the one-year break-even as the short-end real rate. And that is lower. So the one-year break-even gives you the market expectations for the next 12 months, which would be probably reflecting the investment decisions that rational agents will be doing. For the benefit of our listeners, there are many different inflationary indexes. There's the core CPI that the Fed says is their favorite benchmark, and then there's the headline CPI that incorporates all goods and services, including the very volatile oil and food prices. Headline does matter. For policy, core is the preferred objective function because it's less volatile, and it reflects the underlying demand trends in the economy better. You don't want to over-calibrate based on a volatile item. The bond market certainly got inflation wrong the past two years. I agree with you, and I think we should look at broader sources of inflation estimates, particularly like the equity market. What we've been doing recently is looking at price-earnings ratios and their relationship to long-term real rates and 
there has been quite a bit of divergence. So we take that historical relationship and re-estimate from there implied break-evens that come at closer to 4% than 2.5%. The composition of the stock market indices is so different than 40 years ago when manufacturing and cyclical companies dominated the index. Today, a third of the S&P 500 is Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and NVIDIA. These companies are not particularly sensitive to changes in interest rates. Can we use historical P-E ratio analysis if we have much greater tech composition in the stock market index? Great question. And, you know, some of those companies are actually big savers. Some of the big equity names that have large cash deposits, they definitely would be a big beneficiary from the interest rate normalization and a positive front-end real rate in terms of cash flow, right? So the equity market is a lot less cyclical. The high multiples that those tech companies trade on reflect expectations about the impact of technology on future growth. I had been expecting that the interest rate-sensitive cyclical stocks would have gone way down after these big interest rate hikes. But the home builders and auto manufacturers have done remarkably well. The employment side of the economy is still strong, so the aggregate wage income is still quite decent and has allowed the economy to sustain demand for interest-sensitive products like houses and autos, right? Down the road, our models show that when front-end rates go up two to two and a half, three years later, you start getting meaningful impact on the interest rate sensitive sector. So 2024, from Q2 on, we think the labor market can start weakening. Things may start looking quite different in those two particular sectors that you mentioned. What we credit creation has slowed down significantly, particularly through the bank channel. And if we do get some fiscal consolidation, which seems to be a current trend, actually, then those effects together will slow down demand probably quite meaningfully in the first half of next year. Stable inflationary expectations are a wonderful public good. Individuals can enter long-term contracts if they expect the value of the dollar to be known. That may be over. One aspect of inflation is that some workers will get pay increases at different times. Auto workers are currently striking and demanding a 50% hike in wages and benefits. If this happens, the cost of a car will go up in real terms, and then other workers will then demand greater wages. This wage pressure will be ongoing. It's a great question. Is this what we call second-round effects? And this is what German Bundesbank always is kind of vigilant on and loses its sleep on. These processes obviously happen in the economy. It's a matter of sectoral bargaining, negotiation. The more immigration an economy has, the less of those processes happen, right? You know, there is a post pandemic effect on participation, which shows that the labor market is tight everywhere, right? Eventually, we will have some second round effects. And the only way to prevent another wave of higher inflation after the initial moderation, which was very much related to actually the pass-through of energy moderation that we had in the last 12 months, to prevent that, we do need to have slower demand. And as central bankers would say we need to come down along the Phillips curve to a more sustainable level of unemployment in terms of the inflation objectives, right? Otherwise, if we have another round of inflation, we will probably then affect medium long-term inflation expectations. The back end then will not be so well anchored. In G10, unit labor costs are growing, actually, three and a half to five. 
During the past few months, as bond yields have surged, the bond sell-off was all in the TIPS inflation-linked notes. This implies that long-term inflationary expectations have been relatively stable at 2.3%. Why is that? I think this is a bit of a conundrum. When you say a conundrum, do you mean that you think the market is wrong about where future inflation is headed? I think it's wrong, yes. You could put it that way. At the moment, inflation expectations seem well anchored. Why? Because the Fed has been hawkish. A central bank, G10 central banks have been hawkish. They have been credible in their pursuit to achieve 2% inflation. My question about the back-end break-evens is more about the question about the inflation target and whether in a structurally different world from the last 30 years, we should still be using the 2% benchmark as our focal point. I want to push back about the Fed's credibility. The Fed had a 2% inflation target, and the U.S. CPI headline hit around 10%. The next year, we're going to get 5%. The Fed said inflation was transitory for nearly a year before raising rates materially. We are still significantly above the inflation target. And now, you just mentioned that maybe the Fed should raise its target inflation rate from 2% to something higher. What credibility are you talking about? The memory of the current existing market participants doesn't stretch back to the 70s. And, you know, 2% inflation is all they've seen. And that shock is not taken as a paradigm shift. It's taken as a one-off shock that is going to reverse. The truth is that there is no equilibrium level of inflation in the economy. There is equilibrium level of real growth. You can reset an economy to any inflation level you want. Just to take an example, you know, a recent MIT paper on self-financing deficits saying that you don't have to hike taxes as long as you run loose fiscal long enough, your growth is going to catch up to your debt levels and your debt to GDP is not going to be unsustainable. This has one caveat. This happens at higher and higher and higher inflation rate. If you do that strategy, we've seen that in a number of emerging market economies. So if you print enough money, then you can pay off your debt with worthless currency. That sounds like a recipe for disaster. Turkey, in the previous monetary administrations, what they were doing is they were lending generously to state banks, which were lending to the economy. What was happening? Inflation re-anchored from 7 to 16, from 16 to 25, then from 25 to 60. Does anyone in Turkey believe that they'll get back to that 2% inflation target? I think that probably <laughs> is a stretch. Uh, but I think under the current policy administration, there is a good reason to believe that they're going to start rolling down from 60 to 30. That would be you know, a major okay. achievement. And then from 30 to 15, and, you know, the big fight will be to get it below 10%. You know, it's always the big fight. Are there any structural issues that will impact the level of long-term inflation? Deglobalization will be splitting the global economy in two halves. Trade will be disrupted. So, you know, we need to invest on the two blocks. And that will also mean that unit labor costs will not equalize as fast as they did during the globalization period adding to some higher inflation, automation, artificial intelligence are pointed as a kind of important deflationary forces. You know, I am a bit skeptic to that, as we know, the impact of the BOMO effect, which stipulates that the productive sectors of the economy shrink. If you go back to 100 years, agriculture was 85% of GDP, 9% of employment. 
if you went back in time and told them in 200 years, you'll be 1%. What are people going to do? It's crazy, right? Agriculture was the biggest positive productivity shock that we've seen. We can think, oh my God, which industries are going to be affected by AI in that respect? And you can argue that there will be plenty of them and that their relative share will have to shrink and new industries will emerge that will be a lot less productive. So I don't think that we can make a credible expectation about long-term inflation expectations on the basis of our AI assumptions. The Bureau of Labor Statistics released the September employment report last Friday, and the headline numbers showed an increase in employment of 336,000. The labor market has been incredibly strong and resilient despite the dramatic increase in short-term interest rates. The JOLT survey of job openings still suggests that there are millions of job openings. What's going on? Jolts are still way too high. Even though the interest rate-sensitive sectors are shedding a bit more labor than before, those workers are finding a new job quite quickly. However, wage growth has started to moderate. So if you look at average early earnings, they have started to print point twos. Boris, do you have any speculative recommendations for the fixed income markets? Just paying 10-year inflation swaps. Just to clarify what that means for our audience, based on current prices, the expected headline CPI for the next 10 years is 2.3%. Boris thinks that inflation will be higher than that. For those of you at home with a bond portfolio who can't enter into derivative transactions, Boris will be recommending that you invest more money in TIPS, which are inflation index bonds, than with fixed rate bonds. Look, I don't want to make any investment advice here. I'm not in that function. That said, should I buy stocks now, given that you think interest rates are now range-bound? Probably you can be a bit patient there to get a bit more of the quantitative tightening going through over the next six months. But I would say get ready next March and April in the seasonal dip in stocks to buy some. Thank you very much. Pleasure, as always. Thanks to Boris for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The podcast was Running for President. Our guest was Asa Hutchinson, who's the former governor of the state of Arkansas. Asa is running for the Republican nomination for president. He described what it takes to run for president in this election, what the critical policy issues will be, and how to beat the frontrunner Donald Trump. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.